Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and I want to invite you, if you want to take notes today, to look in your bulletin. There's some verses there that we're going to be looking at in due time. Uh, before we jump into that, I do want to just um, kind of person. So you're going to hear story music. He's kind of a storyteller, as well as the music. Um, the food is supposed to be just off the charts phenomenal. Um, it's supposed to be amazing, and the idea that it was made by a family that is refugee, I think, just adds to the flavor um, of the night and politics, right? And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, um, this is a really volatile issue. How amazing would it be if you had the opportunity to be able to say to someone else, hey, look, I know that there's lots of controversy over the issue of refugees in our day. Um, Our church is doing something about it actually right now. There are refugees here in San Diego who are incredibly disenfranchised, who don't have the same amount of access to resources that they need to become, you know, thriving people in society. They're more susceptible to being taken advantage of and even exploited. And our church is doing something this week to help. It's doing something this week to make a difference for refugees that are here in San Diego today. Um, I think that kind of flesh and blood, real tangible kind of solution is one of the things that we do as a church that helps us sort of transcend politics um, and really get at, we want to make a difference here. And so I just want to encourage you to come, encourage you to tell your friends. I think it's a great opportunity for us to show the third way of Jesus when it comes to this political issue. So please come this Wednesday. So I want to start my message, though, with a story. Okay, last August... I had gone on a run, and it was, uh, it was awful. It was, a, it was an incredibly hot day. I think it was a Santa Ana day, and I ran about eight miles. So it was a, on the longer side of runs for me. My sweat-whisking, dry-fit clothing, right, that's supposed to like take sweat away from your body so that when you're done, you're actually drier than when you started, um, that clothing was sopping wet. And, uh, and I tend to sprint at the end, you know, just because, I don't know, maybe if people see me at the end, they'll think I'm cool because I'm sprinting at the end of the run. Um, no, I kind of want to just end by, like, putting it all out on the field, right? I want to get every last bit of energy and exertion, you know, at the end of the run. And so I'm sprinting the last eighth of a mile, and all I could think about as I was going past, like, the five houses on my street before mine was that I was dying for a drink, well, I get home, and I find out that actually there is a friend of mine who's in the backyard, and he's doing yard work in our backyard. And this wave of guilt came over me. Sometimes what is even more important to me than refreshing my thirst is looking good in the eyes of other people, right? Right? And I'm thinking, wait, wait, I can't, I got, he's already, he's doing, I got to, and so I ended up going out there and just jumping into the yard work that he was doing. And so I was already exhausted, and to my exhaustion, I add grass clippings and dirt and pollen and bugs and everything everywhere. And I realized, like, what I should have done was I should have walked into the backyard and said, oh, man, you're doing such amazing work. You must be tired and thirsty. Let me get you a drink, Right? That's what I should have done, but I didn't, because I didn't think of it. That would have been really smart, because then I would have been able to drink, but instead I suffered. I suffered even more. 
And it was about two hours before we finished. And then I was dying. I was dying. But, but, but there was hope because I had something waiting for me. I had a cold, chilled, water-condensed bottle of lemonade waiting for me in the refrigerator. And I was so committed to this bottle of lemonade. I was so excited about this bottle of lemonade because, and I was like, all right, I'm going all out. I'm going to do something I've never done before with lemonade. I didn't just want this lemonade in me. I wanted this lemonade all over me. And so I grabbed the bottle and I go outside onto our back deck and I rip open the cap and toss it and I threw it back. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. I didn't realize that there was a seal on the top of the bottle of lemonade. I couldn't get to the refreshment. There was something else that I had to do. There was something standing in between me and the glorious life-giving elixir that was inside this plastic bottle, and I couldn't get to it. And I was, have you tried to do these things? They, they make it easy for you, but you can never get it right, and then it like dribbles out the side, and then you rip it off the wet, and it just takes forever, and I'm like, oh, can I even do this? And then this one has this thing that like goes up on the top, so it's supposed to be a thing where you can like peel it, and oh, hey, it worked this time. Fantastic. And as I'm peeling this off, right, struggling with it, like a thought hit me. I thought, it seems like this is a picture of something else. It seems like this is actually, in some ways, kind of the condition of our life sometimes with God. Um, I was thinking, you know, how many times have I tried to like reach out to God? You know, like I've tried to pray and I tilt, I can't do this anymore. I I tilt my head back and nothing comes out. Um, How many times have I maybe gone to the Bible or how many times have I come to church or how many times have I gone into a situation where I was trying to do the right thing and I tilt my head back and, and there's nothing there. Um, and I realized that this cap, this seal, like sits over kind of the, I don't know if it sits over like underneath heaven or if it sits on my heart or if it sits in my mind, but there's this cap here. There's a seal that blocks me from receiving God. Um, We talk about God's grace. We sing about God's grace um, and how amazing his grace is, right? That it pours out over us like a flood. And so often for me, I feel like ah, I go to the well and, and there's nothing there. There's something that's blocking. Can anyone identify? Um, the book of Romans, in the beginning, in chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is specifically trying to get us to a place where we can take these off of our hearts. He's trying to help us. 
by talking about the things that block our relationship with God. Um, and we've been watching him do this. Um, really, he, he says there's, there's three things that cut us off from God. Okay, there's three things. I'll show them to you here. We've seen these things. He says, uh, first, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, sin cuts us off from God. Right? These are bad things that we do that make God either mad or sad. Right? It's kind of like in, in, if you're in a dating relationship or a marriage relationship or a friendship where you do something to hurt the other person, and it's just kind of there. Right? You hurt them, and unless you deal with it, it's like a cap where love can't flow back and forth until you deal with it. Right? So sin you know, does this in our relationship with God. Um, second, idols do this to us. And idols aren't necessarily a bad thing, but they're usually good things that we put before God. Okay? And so money can come before God. Sex comes before God sometimes. Career, relationships. There are things in our lives that by themselves they're good, but when we compromise what God wants for us in order to get them, these good things then come before God and they become false gods. They become idols. And this cap goes back over us and we can't experience God. And this is what really Paul deals with in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. We've looked at that and watched how the gospel is trying to interrupt that story. Well, the third thing that cuts us off from God actually is religion. It's religion. And religion in the sense that rituals that substitute for God. Right? So sometimes, often, religion becomes a set of rules or a set of rituals that we follow instead of actually having to have a relationship with God. Right? Instead of dealing with God personally, we say, well, I'm going to read the Bible or I'm going to go through this ritual. I'm going to come to church so that we really don't have to deal with it. We just sort of check off boxes, religious activities that we do. And, um, and when we do that, when our life drifts in that direction, where we're just checking things off, or we're going through the motions, we're aiming at rituals, again, a cap, a seal forms, and we get cut off from God. And this third thing, this third way that we get cut off from God is what Paul's dealing with in chapter 2 of Romans. Okay? In Romans chapter 2, and specifically the passage we're going to look at today, Paul talks about fake religion. He's talking about, he's speaking to people who thought that because they followed a religious ceremony, they were fine with God no matter how they lived their lives. Okay? Um, and not just fine with God, but these people thought that they were actually better than everybody else because in their minds they had this agreement with God and that agreement said that if they followed this religious ceremony, then God loved them better than everyone else. And they took it to a far extreme because, again, they believed that since this religious ceremony made God love them more and made them better than everybody else, then if you didn't have that religious ceremony, then God was going to judge you and send you to hell. And the worst part of this was that these people who trusted in this religious ceremony, they were living awful lives. They weren't living good lives. They didn't care about other people. They really didn't care about God except that they wanted to use God and God's forgiveness to justify anything in their lives that might be wrong. And so what would this look like today? Well, this would look like today someone who maybe was given a Bible as a kid in a ceremony. And because that person thinking, well, I have this Bible, it doesn't matter how I live because I got the Bible. I got a Bible. I had this experience when I was a kid. There was a religious thing that happened, and now I'm good. Right? There's people who are like that. 
Um, or it's like someone who maybe is even attending our church today and they call themselves Christian, but you could never tell by looking at the way they live their life that they had any sort of real commitment to God. They claim that their religion means that they know God, but their life doesn't consistently show that they have a relationship with God. You with me? And so it's important that you get a clear picture of what this kind of person is, because when you hear how people are described in this passage, it's probably going to make you laugh, and it might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I don't want you to get distracted by the description of these people and lose actually the description of who they are or, or, or where you can find them or the things in your own heart that might make you become like a person this way. Um, you might get distracted because of the way the Bible describes these folks. Um, during the time that this letter was written, the people who were guilty of fake religion were described by the ritual that they had gone through. Okay, And that ritual was circumcision. Okay, circumcision. And the only reason you're not like weirded out right now is if you've been around the church for a while, you know this is one of these things that we talk about. And it's kind of just sort of a title and you don't really think about what circumcision is. You just realize this is something that the Bible talks about. So, um, so circumcision was this ancient ritual that God gave to Abraham. And even folks that maybe aren't familiar with the Bible know about Father Abraham. He had many sons. Um, 2,000 years before this was written, okay? Circumcision was this religious ritual that God gave to his people 2,000 years before Jesus. And this ritual put a sign on the men of a family, and that sign said that that family was going to love God and follow his ways. Okay, that's what the sign meant. So in the Bible, in Abraham's day, that ancient ritual of circumcision meant these three things. It means that God loves us and has changed us. Okay, it was an opportunity for them to rehearse that God has rescued us from our sins and God is making us new people from the inside out. God is working in our lives. We know him, he's with us. But it also meant that we love God and we're willing to follow God. We're even willing to go through great pain to follow God, at least half of us are. Um, women have pain in another way. But then third, the circumcision ritual meant that God's love and ours includes our children. Okay, and so the ritual of circumcision, it's placed where it is because God was showing that his love would be passed down through families who loved him, through families who followed him, and through families who taught their children to know and walk with God. This is what it was designed for initially when God instituted the ritual of circumcision. The problem was that 2,000 years later, that meaning was lost. It had become corrupted by people who didn't care about God, and they were just going through the motions of the ritual. And so here's what it meant in Paul's day. So not in Abraham's day, but 2,000 years later, in Paul's day, when he was writing this letter, circumcision meant God loves us, we're better than all those non-circumcised people out there. And nothing else matters. <laughs> We're good. We have this ritual. We've gone through this ritual. Our family is part of the descendants of Abraham and nothing else matters. And so circumcision was a one-word summary of the fake religion of the Jews during the time of Jesus. 
And what Paul is doing in our passage today is he's, he's telling us that, look, underneath that fake religion, so underneath the rituals, underneath the symbol of circumcision is a substance. Okay, in this passage, Paul says there's both symbol and substance. And if we want to remove the cap on our own lives to experience God's presence and his power, we need to pursue after the substance. Okay, and so I want to read these verses. We're going to look at them one by one. We're going to start with Romans 2, verse 25. We're going to read them verse by verse so we can understand these verses. So let's look at verse 25. It says this. It's up here on the screen. It's also in your bulletin if you want to look there as well. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So what's he saying here? I don't think it's too difficult. Um, He's saying circumcision is actually valuable if you actually love God and have a relationship of obedience with him. Right? The reason they got circumcised is because the law said to get circumcised. And so Paul is saying, look, circumcision is valuable if you actually follow the rest of the law. But if you have the symbol of circumcision without the substance of a relationship with God, then you are no better than the people who aren't circumcised and live far away from God. Okay, so symbol without substance is worthless. Symbol without substance is uncircumcision. And when he says here breaking the law, if you break the law, he doesn't mean, he's not talking about if you're not perfect. He doesn't mean that if you have circumcision, then you have to be perfect. That's not what he's saying there. Breaking the law means living as though you don't care about God's law. Breaking the law means you don't care what God has to say. You couldn't care less. You're going to do your own thing. You might obey God if it lines up with what you want, but basically, you know, you're not, you don't care about the law. That's, and so if you don't care about what the law says, then the symbol of circumcision is meaningless. You have symbol without substance. Okay, so then verse 26 goes on. It says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And so here he's saying actually works the other way too. If someone doesn't have the symbol of circumcision, but does love God and obeys the precepts of his law, even though he's not circumcised, his life of love and faith expressed in obedience is the substance behind circumcision. Okay? And so this means that his uncircumcised life is actually counted as circumcised. So you can have the substance without the symbol. Okay, verse 27 goes on. It says, then, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, again, not perfectly, but has a relationship with God and is endeavoring in their heart to follow after him, right? But he keeps the law. That one who's physically uncircumcised will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So what was going on during Paul's day was that the Jews, who were the fake religious people, they were the ones who had the symbol without the substance. At that time, they were judging everybody else. They thought they were better than everybody else. Paul's saying, actually, actually what's going to happen is that uncircumcised Christians who display a relationship with Jesus in their lives, they are actually going to judge the Jews who don't love and follow Jesus, even if they have the symbol 
of being in a relationship with God. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. This is a big deal. This is a big deal back then when Paul wrote this. Paul is redefining what it means to be Jewish. Paul is upending 2,000 years of the description of a Jew. Being Jewish up to that point in time included being circumcised. You couldn't call yourself Jewish if you weren't circumcised. And Paul's saying here, wait, no, 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 actually no. Circumcision is not outward and physical. And so Paul is redefining what it means to be Jewish. He's saying here, it's not about the substance. I'm sorry, it's not about the symbol. It's all about the substance. That being a Jew is all about the substance. You can have the symbol if you have the substance. That's what he says in verse 25. Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But you can also have the substance of a relationship with God without the symbol. And so being Jewish is not about outward appearances. Circumcision is not even about the symbol. It's not about having the procedure done to your body. Verse 29, he creates the positive description. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul says something here that he will end up picking up again in chapter 3. He'll pick it up again in chapter 4. He'll pick it up again in chapter 5. He'll pick it up again in chapter 7. He'll pick it up again then in chapters 9 through 11. And this will come. It is a theme that Paul sort of hints at here, describes it. It's kind of like a stick and move moment with boxing, you know, where you punch someone and you back off and you come back and you know, he's going to punch again in chapter 3, punch again in chapter 4, and then 9 through 11, he just blitzkrieg onslaught and completely puts the issue to rest. And if that was too violent for you because Jesus is mild and mannered, then I'm sorry. But, um, but the argument that Paul is, is, is waging here in this letter, he's got this theme that is so vitally important because if you've been here for the last few weeks, you remember that there was a huge problem between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul had to radically reset what it meant to be Jewish after Jesus showed up on the scene. And so Paul is saying here something that he's going to pick up and we're going to see it um, as we continue to go through this letter and we'll talk about it. Remember we said this in chapter 2, well now he's going to say it again here and we'll watch his argument grow and develop. But he's saying here, being Jewish is about the inward part of who you are. It's actually about your heart. It's not about your skin. Right? The symbol is nothing without the substance. But that circumcision now is about being in a relationship with God. Okay? And let me just be clear, it always was that way. Circumcision was always about being in a relationship with God. Circumcision was always, the physical act of circumcision was always about the cutting away of your sinful self and having a heart underneath the circumcision that loved God and wanted him. And so, but here we're seeing that actually now circumcision is achievable if you have a relationship with God, even if you don't 
have the symbol. And so today what Paul is saying then is that circumcision means, next slide, um, it means that we are committed to Jesus. And so this is what Paul is saying circumcision means in this passage. He's saying this means that God loves us and has changed us. Right? This means that we love God and we will follow God. And the circumcision of the heart means that God's love and ours includes our children because we are going to raise them walking with Jesus. We're going to raise them knowing about God's amazing grace, his amazing love, his unending forgiveness. And so we see that in these verses, Paul is actually returning to the original meaning of circumcision for Abraham, but he's adding this twist that you can be circumcised in your heart without being circumcised in your body, that you can get the substance without the symbol. And in this way, what Paul is doing, he's saying, y'all, you got this religion and this religion has put a block between you and God. You cannot get to God. You can't get to him. What you need is for your heart to be circumcised. You need to come to God. And the question for us then is, how do you do it? Like, how do you physically do this with false religion and fake religion? How do we uncap God's presence and God's power in our lives when we have tried to pursue religion to get us there um, and it fails us? The answer begins earlier in this chapter. It begins with Romans 2, verse 4. It's pretty simple. It just says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so this is where it starts. Pulling the cap off actually means repenting. It means turning. It means turning your life back to God. Um, I had a friend this week ask me this question. She said, um, how would you define a good Christian? And before I said anything, I thought, you know what, that, just that phrase, like a good Christian, um, makes me nervous. And I'm thinking, like, I'm just starting to get to know this person, and I'm thinking the only place I've ever heard that term used is by people that tend to not be very good Christians. Um, people who use this phrase of, like, well, are you a good Christian or a bad Christian? You know, are the people that tend to actually use religion to exclude people. They tend to use religion to make other people feel like they're not good enough. And so I said, huh, that's an interesting question. Um, where have you heard that phrase, good Christian? And she said, I don't know. I guess I've just been in different churches before that have made me feel bad. And, um, and I felt like if I wasn't perfectly willing to obey everything, then I wasn't going to be good enough and God wasn't going to love me. And I, th- I just, I said, wow. Um, I, I said, let me, let me tell you how Jesus defines a good Christian. I mean, just using that phrase. I don't like the phrase, but you asked, so let me answer in the phrase that you asked. Um, and I said, Jesus said that good Christians are people who are spiritual zeros. Good Christians are people who, who don't have their act together 
whose lives are uncomfortably broken and embarrassing. Um, Jesus said that those people whose lives are like that are actually happy and blessed by God. And she looked at me like I was crazy. Um, (laughs) Well, if I'm crazy, then Jesus is crazy because this is what Jesus means when he said in one of his first sermons in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who are spiritually bankrupt. They are poverty, they're impoverished, not financially, but they're impoverished in their hearts, in their spirits. They have nothing to offer to God. That's where Jesus starts in his definition of a good Christian. Um, I told her that Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, who realize that this is their condition and they're sad about it. They're sad that when it comes to what God expects from them, they have not delivered. Um, And so they're humble. Jesus said, blessed are those who are humble uh, because they're mourning over their sin and they realize they're not better than anybody else. And so they're humble. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And these are people who long to be what God wants them to be, who long to have lives where, <laughs> where, what, where their presence in the world makes the world better. And not just way up there in the idea realm, but that, that these are people who hunger and thirst so that God would fill them with the ability to encourage their friends and to lift up people who are hurting and suffering. They long to have the kind of lives that would support people, that would comfort people, that would bring truth and wisdom to bear so that other people can actually live incredibly powerful and wonderful lives. And Jesus goes on. And I said, this is how Jesus defines what a good Christian is. And so this, instead of excluding everyone, this actually includes everyone. This is an invitation to anyone. And the only way that you need to worry about whether you qualify under Jesus' definition is are you willing to say that you can't do it on your own? Like, are you willing to say, God, I need help because I'm not what you want me to be? And she said, wow. Wow. She says, that sounds very different from what I've heard before. And I was like, you know, you know these two or three people that I know that are, I mean, they've been walking with Jesus and some not very long. Like, haven't they talked to you about this? Because the Bible says that this news about Jesus is good news, and what you're describing sounds like awful news. And she goes, well, we haven't really talked about this in this kind of detail before. And I'm thinking, man, like here's a girl who just needs her friends to tell her, this is what my experience with Jesus has been like. Because she's open. She's wanting to come. And then I said, let me tell you one other story. One other story. Um, because Jesus is saying, and he's serious, that if you're willing to be poor in spirit, if you're willing just to admit your sins, if you're willing to repent, to admit that you have failed, to admit that you're not what God has called you to be, to bring into the light the ways that you have fallen short, that's how you peel this cap off and you'll begin to experience God again. And I told her the story of Peter. And I, I told it in, in, in pretty good length, but... Uh, 
I mean, Peter was the guy who was in charge. He was the leader. He was the guy who said, Jesus, I'm never going to betray you. And Jesus is like, yes, you will. He's like, no, I won't. He says, yes, you will. No, I won't. Jesus said, look, the rooster's not going to crow until you deny me three times. And Peter's like, whatever. And just hours later, right, Peter denies Jesus. Peter crumbles under the pressure of someone who wanted to help Peter get out of the cold and bring him to Jesus. If you read John's gospel, that's what the little girl was doing who was asking him, hey, weren't you one of his followers? She was trying to get him in to be with Jesus and Peter's too busy going, no, I don't know him, no, I don't know him, no, I don't know him. That's just an interesting thing. If you haven't seen that in John's gospel, you need to chase that down. But, but, but so here's Peter who said, oh no, I'll never deny you. And there he is denying Jesus over and over and over again. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus went out and found Peter again and restored him. Jesus gave Peter three more chances. He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, well, I like you a lot. Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? And Peter said, I like you. I can't say I love you because I I denied you. You'll, You'll nail me to the wall because of what I did. Jesus, I can't say I love you, but I like you. You know that I do. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you like me a lot? And Peter said, Jesus, you know everything. You know that in the depths of my heart, what I did, I feel so bad for. I am a spiritual zero. I have nothing to offer you except this broken heart. This broken heart that is never what it's supposed to be, that's always struggling, that's always stumbling. But Jesus, you know that I'm doing the best I can. And Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, I need you to lead my people. I don't just want to restore you, but I need to put you in charge because I want to build a movement of people who are not perfect, who aren't good Christians, but they're willing to admit that in their lives, they have a desperate and ongoing need of repentance. The story with this girl, she's, she's excited. She's pressing in. She wants to read more about Jesus and how he treats people. Um, but man, this, this is where it starts. If you want to know how to be freed from false religion, if you want to be known how to be freed from any of your sins, whether it's religious sins or if you want to get this cap off of your life, you need to go to the Lord and say, God, finally I am yours everything that's in between us, everything that I'm holding on to, every relationship that's not honoring to you, I'm confessing it as sin. It doesn't belong in my life and I'm going to give it to you. Everything that I'm doing, I'm going to readmit that it's sin. Everything that I'm doing wrong. God, I'm coming clean. God doesn't require that you be perfect. He just wants you to be honest. It's when we're not honest that the cap goes back on to our relationship with God. It's when we're not honest with him. And so the answer for us is just to turn. It's to stop running away from God. It's to stop hiding from God. It's to stop pushing the truth down. It's to stop being defensive. Right? If you're in a relationship, you struggle with defensiveness. If you're not in a relationship, if you have friendships, you struggle with If you have work environment, if there's anybody whose opinion you care about, you struggle with defensiveness. You struggle with hiding. 
and God wants you to come clean. Because when you come clean and you're finally honest before God, the cap comes off and his grace and his love flows. When you do this, God does something to you. When you do this, God performs a circumcision on your heart. He cuts away the sin that is locked in there. He cuts away the bad decisions that you've made. He cuts away the insecurities that you have. He peels that stuff off and he throws it away. He puts his presence in you. He changes you. Man, past the symbol, when you turn and you are admitting, you are honest about your sin, he comes into your life and he changes you. He changes you. You realize how much he loves you, that he'd be willing. Like Jesus died for your sins. He died to take your sins from you. He suffered for your sins and he rose again so that you could have his perfect heart. And it says there in verse 29, it says circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. By the spirit. And so God puts his spirit in us. His presence is with us. And it's not his condemning presence. It's not his presence that, well, you haven't done enough. Like, that's not God when he's in your life. That's not the voice of God. God's voice is, I love you. I loved you before we started. I am with you. I am here. I think the world of you, I've got great plans for your life, and we're going to do this together. You're not who you need to be now, but that's okay, because I know that, and I love you anyways, and I'm going to work in your life by my presence to make you new. And when God does that, you want to serve him. (laughs) You're actually moved by his love. It's kind of unbelievable sometimes. You think, man, does he really still love me? And sometimes you need somebody else in your life, someone in your life group to go, yeah, he does. He does. He promises that he does. And so we want to we want to aim after this, right? We want to chase after this. And here during this time of Lent, we're trying to make this practical. We're trying to apply these things to our lives just for a week, just for a week. And so Lent is both denial and devotion. And, and this is what I want you to try to do this week. Um, in terms of denial, I want you to deny merely the symbol, right? So I want you to deny, don't stop this week at the symbol, okay? Don't be content to call yourself a Christian, right? Be someone who has a relationship with God, all right? Don't be content merely to go through the motions of church or to go through the motions even of communion, but instead devote yourself to Jesus. Devote yourself and pursue the substance of a relationship with God. Just this week, Just this week, go beyond the symbol, go beyond the name, go beyond the rituals and pursue the substance of a relationship, right? Don't pray this week, just talk to God. Tell God how you're feeling. Tell God what you're looking forward to in your day. Tell God what you're nervous about with your day. Tell him that you love him and that you're thankful for what he's done. And then tell him that you're gonna live today as if he was real and he was with you right? 
if you read the Bible, don't just go through the motions of reading the Bible, but, but tell yourself, God, you want to speak to me through this book. And so I want to hear what you have to say to my life today. Right? Press through because you have a relationship with God. And I want you to walk in that. I mean, this is why we're doing all these things, all these events that Chad talked about. Right? This is why on Wednesday we're trying to aim to make a difference in the lives of refugees. We're trying to celebrate music and the arts and, and to celebrate the music of Brady Toops. We, right, we want to serve the city and celebrate who God is and what God's doing in the lives of, of this one artist. Um, this is why we did 2020, right? So that we can see that work is more meaningful, that, that we can have a perspective on work that transcends every part of who we are. Right, the speaker series on Friday, right? Someone who's going to speak intelligently about our need for authentic community here in the city, right? We're trying to do these things. We're not perfect as a church, and sometimes we just aim, be satisfied with the symbol, like we went through the motions, but we're trying to press through, and we're trying to live together and act together in ways that show that we have a real relationship with God. And so join us this week. Because what's exciting is that as we do this, we get the last thing that verse 29 says. It says that his, the person who has this relationship with God, his praise is not from men, but from God. When you do this, God will praise you as one of his own. God will say, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter, and in you I am well pleased. Right? This is what's at stake. God is, he will honor you. He will brag about you. He will de- be delighted with you. What? How? Just by peeling off the cap and turning toward him and being honest about your sin and then wanting to live in a relationship with him this week. That's it. If you do that, he will praise you. He will shepherd you. He'll raise you as his child. He will be for you so it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. He will refresh your spirit. He will be for you what this lemonade ultimately was for me. Man, let's take the cap off and drink deeply. Pray with me. Father, we want this so much. We want you, Jesus. And we confess that in a room this big, there are so many of us that have so many different ways that we put a cap on our relationship with you. And we just want to bring these things to you now. Jesus, we want to admit, we want to name the things that separate us from you, the sins that we commit, the sins that we harbor in our hearts. Oh, Jesus, you just put something on my heart. I'm sorry. Jesus, the idols, the good things that you've given to us in our lives, we then turn around and we bow down to them instead of you. And then we're guilty of going through the form of religion and the symbols of religion and we, we forget to spend time with you. And so draw near to us. Receive our repentance. Move in our hearts. We are coming, Jesus. We are coming, confessing that we live far from you. And whether it's in our entire life or it's just aspects of our lives, Jesus, we come back 
I want to peel these things off of our hearts and give them to you, knowing that you nailed them to the cross and that you bring us forgiveness. Today, Jesus, right now, rip the cap off of our hearts and pour into us your love. Spirit, come and show us the things that we need to give to you, that we need to give up so that we can receive your refreshing grace. Do this for everyone here, Christians and folks who aren't Christians. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.